our mission, we're all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want people to come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and that allow God to, to, to use our lives to make that happen and disciple those that come to know him. We are going to continue our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this the action of the church because that's exactly what this book is about. So if you brought your Bibles with you, if you could open to Acts chapter 18, it's going to be helpful. We're going to be just walking our way through the verses. Just open Acts chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 9 through 28 this morning. And I'm calling this sermon encouragement for a soul winner. If you've been with us through this series, the Apostle Paul has been traveling all over the known world. He's been traveling uh, all over the Mediterranean Sea, if you will, the Roman Empire. And he's been preaching the gospel of grace. Last week, if you're with us, Paul was in the city of Corinth. Now, when it was all said and done, Paul spent a year and a half in the, in the city of Corinth. And Corinth happened to be the place where Paul stayed for the longest period of time up until this point in his missionary journeys. What Paul usually does, he, he goes to a city that has never heard the name of Jesus Christ, and, and he goes into a, a synagogue and he preaches the gospel. And I'm going to say it like this. After he preaches the gospel, something happened. Maybe he, got, he gets beat up, or he gets dragged outside the city and stoned, or he gets thrown in jail, or, or people believe. People get saved, and, and then a church is established. And then Paul would pack up and go to the next town. That's usually what happens with, with Paul. And I'm going to say this. I really appreciate his approach. I really enjoy his, his strategy because, again, he goes to a town where no one has heard the name of Jesus and he preaches this message of salvation that is completely contrary to anything anybody has heard at that time. And it's the message that, that salvation can come to you by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. And then whatever happens, happens. That is Paul's approach. Well, he gets to Corinth and he stays there for a year and a half, for 18 months. And Corinth was a difficult place. Corinth is a really difficult place if you're going to be a soul winner. And Paul got discouraged. And, and the Lord gave him, this is Lord Jesus, the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ gave him a special vision. And he told him, don't hold back, Paul. Don't hold back. Keep preaching. Keep reaching. Keep telling people about this gospel message. In verse 9 and 10, that's exactly what happens. If you would, read it with me in Acts chapter 18. And it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Here, this brings us to our first point this morning. Here's my first point. Point number one. The Lord wants to save more people. Keep talking about Jesus. Now remember, here in Acts chapter 18, this is Jesus. This is our Lord and Savior that's speaking to Paul, saying, keep preaching. Keep, there's more people I want to save in this city, Paul, so don't you stop telling people about me. I mean, talk about an encouraging message, right? How would, you, would that be an encouraging message to you to get this dream from Jesus saying, keep doing what you're doing, don't stop? Well, that encourages the Apostle Paul, and he keeps preaching. And that's where we left off last week in the book of Acts. And so we need to know that, that Corinth 
is, is the capital city in this, this region that's called Acacia. And in those days, the, the southern portion of Greece, it was all called Acacia. And it was, it was almost an island, if you will. Okay, if, if I had a map, I could show you there's this, this portion that's called Acacia. And it's almost an island, except for this real narrow little stretch of land that connects it to the rest of the, the landmass. Okay? And it, it's, it's, it's so close to being an island, except for that little tiny stretch that connects the, the rest of the body to the, the mainland. And um, the term is actually, it's the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Okay, it's fun to say, if you want to say it with me, say Peloponnesian, I've been practicing this. Oh, it's hard to say. Peloponnesian Peninsula, Peloponnesian Peninsula, Peloponnesian Peninsula, and that's as good as I can do. I can't say it ten times. Three is all I got in me. But Corinth is the capital city in the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And the, the whole area is called Acacia. And, and it's a very important area because of its trade. Okay? And also that, that little stretch of land, it connects two bodies of water. And so if you were to look on a map, you'd see on one side is the Adriatic Sea or the Iconian Sea. And the other side is essentially the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? And it's surrounded by water on all sides, except for that little tiny narrow stretch of land, which just happens to be three and a half miles wide. And there's a couple ways you could travel in this area. You could tra- choose, if you're in one side, you want to travel all the way to the other You could choose to travel by boat, and that would be a 200-mile sail by ship. And if you chose to go this route, you would go down through what's called the Cape of Malaya. And it's a terribly dangerous route to take. In fact, theologians say that that sailors during this time, they had this saying that said, if you choose to sail this way, well, then you need to have your will felled out. So clearly, it's a dangerous place to be a sailor. Well, the other way, I said there's two ways you could get from one side to the other. The other side was, the other way was to take your ship, pull it out of the water, put it on rollers, and to actually roll it across land. Because after all, it's only three and a half miles wide. Well, somebody did it. Somebody put their ship on rollers and said, see, it can be done. And so that's a way a lot of people opted to go from one side to the other. Well, this is where Corinth is at, okay? And it's a very famous city. It's also a very wild city okay it it is it is known because people are flowing into the city for business and flowing right back out again and so corinth was known for its its traffic its flowing of people also for its its trade its commerce but then there's a very seedy side of the city of corinth okay corinth is really known for its debauchery okay it is an exceedingly immoral city Corinth was known because there's this mixture of traveling people coming into the city for, for trade. And they, so they would flow in and they would flow out. But also they're also known for this religious system. Now there was many religious systems in the city of Corinth. But the main one, the, the, the most predominant, was the worship of Aphrodite. Okay, Aphrodite, she is the goddess of love. And so if you were in the city of Corinth, you could, wherever you're at in the city, you could look up and you would see this hill. They called it the Acro-Corinth. And at the top of this hill, this Acro-Corinth, is this temple. And the temple was to Aphrodite. And it wasn't there by accident. They put that temple there so everybody could see what was going on on that temple. It's kind of like a billboard, if you will. You can't miss it. Well, inside the temple, there's a thousand priestesses, okay? These are religious prostitutes. And they would come out of the temple, and they would flow down to the city, for, and they would meet all the businessmen and women that were in town for business, and they would play their trade to them, okay? And this is all done in the name of religion. 
And I have to believe it wasn't terribly hard to apply the trade that they were trying to apply on these people. And because of that, Corinth got a bad reputation. I mean, when I say bad, I mean bad reputation. And I have to believe that, that it was just dark. And in fact, in all the Greek plays, if there was this individual, they, were, they would call them the Corinthians, and they were always depicted as being drunk. Okay, and so there were, there's, during this time, there was this, it was almost like a cuss word. They would call people, and this word is the Corinthian. The people in plays are called the Corinthians, but also in general, if you called somebody a Corinthian, you're saying you're a lowlife, you're a scumbag, you're an immoral person, you, you're a sick-minded person. That's what it meant to call somebody a Corinthian. And so, I mean, that's how bad the reputation of Corinth was. It was a party town. Picture Las Vegas. Picture Hollywood. We have a lot of them in our, in our country. You go ahead and pick your town, okay? But that's where Paul went. This is where Paul chooses to go to, to be a soul winner. How would you like to be a soul winner in Las Vegas? How about West Hollywood? Not a fun place to be a soul winner. Well, that's exactly what Paul does, okay? He goes there, and he becomes discouraged, and I think it would be a very easy place to become discouraged if you're a soul winner. Because after all, he is trying to save people that are living in the most debased city in the known world at that time. And so Paul goes there and he meets two people. We read about them last week. They're also tent makers. It's a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. And this couple was in Rome, but they got kicked out of Rome because they were Jewish. It was Emperor Claudius that kicked them out for being Jewish. It wasn't just them. In fact... Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Well, these two, they went to Corinth, and that's where they met Paul. And we're guessing they must have met in the synagogue. That would make sense because that's where Paul always went. We, we know these, these guys were, were Jewish. Well, during that time, people of the same trade sat in the same places in the synagogue. So if you're a stonemason, you would sit over here. And if you're a woodworker, you'd sit over here. Well, all the tin makers are over here. Well, I have to picture this guy walks up to the Apostle Paul, sticks his hand out, and says, Hey, my name's Aquila. This is my wife, Priscilla. And it's nice to meet you guys. And so these, this couple became very good friends with the Apostle Paul. And they brought encouragement to Paul. And they bring him encouragement because that's what friends do, right? They bring you encouragement. The new friends bring you encouragement. But I want to say old friends, they bring you a lot of encouragement. And so Paul, he's in Corinth, he's doing spiritual battle in the synagogues, he's made some new friends, but at this point some old friends show up. It's Timothy and Silas. They've been up in Macedonia, they came down to Corinth, and they're there not only to encourage them, but we believe that he, they, they're also bringing some financial aid. If you piece all the pieces of scripture together, Timothy and Silas very likely had some money for the apostle Paul, so that means he can... Quit making tents and focus all of his time and energy on his messages and preaching the word of God. And so Paul is able to stay there for 18 months on this mission. This is on his second missionary journey. And let's pick it up. Look in verse 11. It says that he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let me give you some dates. I don't know about you, but if I can put dates into this, it really helps me in my mind. But theologians say that, that, that Paul was in Corinth, uh, most likely, from the fall of A.D. 50 all the way to the spring of A.D. 52. And, and he's in Acacia. Well, it helps to know that something happened in A.D. 50 to change the political um, landscape of 
Acacia, which is the southern part of Greece. In, in AD 50, uh, Acacia got a new governor, and his name is Gallio. Go to history books, and it can tell you that there, in AD 52, they got this new governor. His name is Gallio, and he's actually mentioned here in Luke's letter of the book of Acts. Look in Acts 18, verse number 12. It says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So this is what's happening. The Jewish population is not real happy with Paul. Okay? They don't like him. And so what they're trying to do, they're trying to take advantage that there's a new sheriff in town, if you will. Okay? And remember, these guys really, really don't like Paul. And they want to manipulate the government to, to, um, to go against Paul. And so they're using this new guy, Gallio, uh, to, to, to try to attack Paul. By, spoiler alert, it's going to backfire on them. Well, the word tribunal that we read in verse 12, it, it's a word that probably some of you are very familiar with. It's the word bema seat. If you've been a Christian very long, you probably came to, to Sunday messages like this, and there's a preacher that preaches about this bema seat. Well, the bema seat is, is this judgment, if you will. It's a judgment that all believers will experience, and it's not a judgment of like bad things. It's a judgment of reward, okay? It, it, the believers, if you don't know this, I want you to know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will stand before the bema seat, and you're going to be rewarded. You're going to be rewarded on your faithfulness of what you did with this life that, that God has given you. There's rewards coming. But this tribunal, it's a raised platform, if you will. Okay, and this is where this judgment takes place. And so and just you ha- if you happen to go to Corinth today, archaeologists have dug around in the marketplace and they have found this, this tribunal, this, this uh, beam of seed. It's still there. It's a raised platform in the city of Corinth, and I think this is what Paul looked at as his illustration as he pointed and spoke about the Bema seat. Look what happens next, verse 13. Saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now this is what's going on. There's Gallio, he's the new governor, and he hears this word, and he's a Roman official. So when he hears the word law, there's only one thing he's thinking of. He's thinking Roman law. Okay? He's not thinking Jewish law. He has nothing to do with that. But these are Jewish leaders, and they're telling Gallio that Paul is telling them to worship a God contrary to the law. So they're talking about Jewish law. He's hearing Roman law. But he's soon going to put it all together. Okay? He's going to think of himself. He's going to go, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with Roman law. And Paul was about to open his mouth to give a defense to himself, but he doesn't even get the chance to do that. Read verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If this was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to yourself. I refuse to be a judge on these things. He, and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two. When times look dark, remember that God is with you. 
Okay, let me tell you why I would say that. Why do I get this point from that text? And here's why. Because we need to remember that Luke is the author of this book. Okay? And I believe that Luke wants us to, he's really given us an illustration of how, how Jesus is with Paul. Because remember back, Jesus gave Paul a vision. He said, keep preaching, Paul, keep reaching. There's more people that I want to save in this city. He says, I am with you. And now Luke is showing us how Jesus was with Paul, protecting him. Because this is the example that, that Luke has given us is Gallio. How God is using Gallio to protect the Apostle Paul when there's these charges that are brought against him. Because these guys are trying to manipulate Gallio. Okay, they're trying to manipulate Roman justice. And Gallio's not going to have any part of this. You know, Gallio's got a policy, and I really like his policy being an a, um, official. And his, a policy, his policy is really a hands-off policy. Because these guys are disputing religious matters. Okay? And so in Gallio's mind, it must be like a separation of powers, almost like a, a separation of church and state, if you will. What Gallio's thinking, he's thinking, I don't have any jurisdiction over this stuff. He's thinking, I don't care about all this religious stuff you guys are doing. You take care of that. And I just love his hands-off policy. And, and I think it's very important for justice to be done. But with his hands-off policy, he's like, you guys take care of it. I don't care. Let me tell you, if, if Gallio was running for office today, I'd vote for him. I really would. I like his policies. Because they're trying to manipulate the government, Gallio, and it doesn't work. Now, I mentioned earlier that this scheme backfires, and this is how it backfires. I want you to see how it backfires. Back up to verse 8 in, in Acts chapter 18. It reads, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. So Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue back in Acts chapter 18, verse 8. But here in verse 17, it says, And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue. And you're thinking, what in the world's going on here? And there's some people that said, see, there's an error in the Bible. There's an error, and so we have to throw out the Bible. It's worthless. Get rid of it. But that's not the case. You see, it helps to know that a lot of time has passed in between verse 8 and verse 17. Okay, there's been a time gap. Okay, this isn't like verse 8 was Tuesday and verse 17 was Wednesday. That's not what's going on. There's several months in between those two verses. You see, every synagogue has a ruler. Okay, and the ruler of a synagogue was the guy that was in charge to upkeep it. He's appointed by the elders, and he's to oversee the synagogue. And, and so anyways, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Okay? So he was the ruler of the synagogue, and he's, he's serving God, and he's not a believer. That is until Paul comes to town. Paul comes to town, and he preaches the gospel, and, and Crispus gets saved. And then Paul baptized him. So what happens are these Jewish men, they want to replace Crispus because he's a Christian now. He's no longer a rabbinic Jew. Throw that guy out. We need a new guy to replace him. And who do they replace him with? They replace him with Sothenes. And then they go on, they try to manipulate Gallio because they want Paul thrown out of town, and it doesn't work. They, 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 he says, they say, you handle it. So what do they do? They grab Sothenes, who's now the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him. But here's the best part. The best part is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read this together. The first verse of that book says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother... Sothenes, okay? So this is what happens. 
Paul goes to the synagogue, and there's this guy, Crispus, and, and he's not a believer, but he preaches the gospel, and Crispus gets saved and gets baptized, he and his whole household. And these guys try to, to throw him out, of, to throw Paul out of town, and it doesn't work, and so they grab Sothenes instead, and, and he gets beat up. And then somewhere along the line, Paul preaches to him, and he gets saved too. And now there's two Messianic Jews, they're believers in Jesus Christ. And it's all coming through the work of the Apostle Paul. So this is how God was with Paul the entire time. All the plans, they, they backfire. It, it doesn't work. The case gets thrown out of town and two guys get saved. And so verse 18 tells us that Paul was in town a while longer. And we think about it. He, he's got a lot of guys to disciple. He's got these two guys, Sothenes and Crispus, and their whole household that he needs to, to disciple. Keep reading verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Crenchuria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Okay, it, it helps us to know, if we had another map, that Crenchuria is not all that far from Corinth, because there's that little stretch of land that I spoke about earlier, it's an isthmus. And on one side is Crenchuria, and on the other side is Corinth. So they're really, really close to each other. And Paul goes to another synagogue in the port city of Crenchuria, and it, it, it tells it, well, it's on the other side of Corinth, and he cuts off his hair. And it tells us that Paul has taken a vow. And you're thinking, well, what vow has he taken? We don't know, because Luke doesn't tell us. We're not exactly sure, but, but most theologians suggest it was a vow of a Nazarite. Now, without a very long, boring sermon on a holiday, let me just tell you, you can find what the vow of a Nazarite is in, in the Old Testament in um, Numbers chapter 6. Let me sum it up this way, okay? The, in a, if you take a vow of a Nazarite, there's some things you can do and there's some things you can't do. One of the things you can't do is you can't drink any wine. And wine is kind of a celebratory drink, so taking a vow of a Nazarite kind of diminishes your ability to celebrate, if you will. Well, during this time, you let your hair grow out. And at the end of the vow, you would shave off all your head, and you would take that hair, you'd take it to the synagogue, and, and they would burn the hair. So the vow of a Nazarite is kind of a thanksgiving, if you will, that maybe you came to a place and you're just so happy, you're so thankful for what God's doing in your life, and so what you would do is you would take this vow, thanking God for what he has, has done in your life. That's what you would do. Now, you can take this vow or you cannot take this vow. It's up to you. But here's an interesting thing. Think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's preaching in the synagogues that, that Jesus is the Christ. And he's telling people that Jesus can ju justify you for things the law never could. And that, that we're not under the Old Testament system of the law anymore. And we're not under all those regulations. You know, we know that Paul was a champion of grace. Paul's not a champion of the law. So the question most people ask is, well, why is Paul taking a vow then? Okay? There are people that have faulted Paul for taking this vow. There are some people that said, well, it's at this time Paul wasn't saved. That Paul's an unbeliever here. That doesn't fit at all. Okay? Because when Luke writes this book, it's very much chronological. Okay? Well, we know the Apostle Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He used to be called Saul of Tarsus. And back in Acts chapter 9, um, the Saul of Tarsus gets saved. So... That idea doesn't fit. And there are some people who say, well, th at this point, Paul was backsliding. He's backsliding his Christianity going back into works. I don't think that fits either. Here's what I think is going on. 
I think some people are just making a bigger deal out of Paul taking a vow than we really should. Paul took a vow. So what? Big deal. We, we have freedom in Christ to take a vow if we want to or not take a vow if we don't want to. Back when I was in seminary, there was a long period of time where I didn't cut my hair off. I, kinda, I didn't cut my hair, so it, got, it grew out a little long. At the end, when I graduated, I shaved my head. I'm like, yay, thank you, God. You got me through that. That's awesome. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. It also helps to know where Paul is going. Paul, at this time, he's going to Jerusalem. We're going to see this in a little bit. Jerusalem is the capital of Judaism, if you will. It's the center of everything that is Jewish. So Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. Well, we know that Paul said, at one point, he said, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Greeks, I became a Greek. Uh, I, I became all things to all men so that I might save some. He said, so that I can open a door to the Jews and share with them. I think that's what's going on. Paul take, took a vow. He took a vow so he could be a witness to these Jewish people. Now, did he have to do that? No, he didn't have to do that. Did he want to do that? Yeah, he wanted to do that. So no one can fault the Apostle Paul for, for, for taking a vow any more than we can, we can fault Christians for doing some of the things that Christians do today. For example, maybe there is a Christian that could say, you know what, I've, I've read about the Passover, I've seen all how it goes down, and I want to enjoy the Passover meal with my, my family. And if you want to do that, go ahead. Have fun. Do it. You can understand the meaning and understand it and, and see how it, it, it all points to Christ. Or maybe you say, you know what, I went to Jerusalem and I saw how they, they observed the Shabbat, which means rest. We would say Sabbath as, as New Testament readers, which means seventh. If you go there and you see that and you want to do that, go ahead. Have fun with that. Do you have to? No. But if you want to, then go ahead. The problem comes if you say, you know what, you have to keep the Sabbath. You have to keep the Passover. That's what you have to do. No, you don't. You don't have to do these things. We're not under the Jewish covenant. We are Gentiles. So we are free by God's grace. And so that being said, if, God, if Paul is under grace, so if he wants to take a vow, he can take a vow. If he doesn't want to take a vow, he doesn't have to take a vow. Guess what Paul does? He wants to take the vow. And there's some that have come along and said, shame on you, Paul. You shouldn't have taken that vow. That was wrong for you to take that, that, that vow. Well, when people do this, they're doing the exact same thing they're accusing Paul of doing. Because what they're doing, they're saying, I have a law, and the law is you shouldn't follow the law. That doesn't make sense. That's a logical, a fallacy to say something like that. Just bottom line is Paul's under grace. He can live how he wants to. Now I want to throw a wrench into somebody's monkey work. So anybody that's saying that Paul shouldn't have taken a vow. I believe in the future, there is going to be, well, actually the first thing that's going to happen is going to be the rapture. There's going to be a rapture where every believer is just vanishes off the face of the earth. We're gone. And immediately following that, there's going to be a tribulation period. Seven-year period of hell on earth. Worse than anything we've ever seen before. And at the end of seven years, Jesus is going to return, and he's going, to, he's going to end that tribulation period, and he's going to rule and reign from the earth for a thousand years. Okay? Well, in the last part of the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapters 40 through 48, it talks about the temple, how there's going to be, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and it's unlike anything we've ever seen before, this temple in the millennial kingdom. 
It, it, it's much grander and bigger than what Solomon built. It's, it's bigger than what, what Herod built. It, it is massive, okay? And it's in this temple that the Messiah, Jesus, is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Here's what's interesting about this. There's going to be sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. Okay, there's going to be animal sacrifices, Jewish sacrifices. It says that people from all over the world are going to make a pilgrimage, people from different nations, and they're going to come and they're going to worship Jesus and participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. Ezekiel says this, it also says this in the book of Zechariah. Look this up for yourself. Now, you have to wonder, why are we having sacrifices? Okay, if Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, which he is, why are we having sacrifices? Well, I will say it like this. The Old Testament sacrifices looked prospective. Okay, if you were a Jewish believer, you took your little lamb and you took it to the temple and you handed it to a priest and that priest would, would kill that lamb and that looked prospective to what God would do in the future. Now, it wasn't like they're saying, hey, give this lamb and you're saved. That's works-based religion. That's not what it was doing. But when, a, when an Old Testament believer gave his lamb to the priest and it was killed, what that, that Old Testament believer is thinking, you know what, God's going to do this for me in the future. In the future, God's going to take the life of, of an innocent so a sinner, a guilty person like me, can, can be free. It was looking prospective to what Jesus would do on the cross of Calvary. Well, the millennial sacrifices are retrospective, okay? They're looking backwards, okay? And you're thinking, retrospective, why are we doing that? It's really similar to what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion, when we enjoy communion as a church, we're taking the bread and the, and the juice, the body and the blood of Christ, and we're looking back, we're saying, this is what Jesus did for me on the cross of Calvary. That's looking retrospectively. Well, in the millennial kingdom, we will have retrospective sacrifices. Jesus is saying, you know, do this to remember what I have done for you. Just a little fun fact for, for anybody that's thinking Paul shouldn't have taken a vow. Just wanted to throw that in there. Keep reading. Look in verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a little longer, he declined. So at this time, Paul must have traveled by boat because it was probably easier to catch a boat from Corinth to Ephesus more so than anywhere else in the, the known world at that time because Corinth and Ephesus were on direct trade routes from each other and also very important capital cities. Well, Paul came to Ephesus and he left in Ephesus Aquila and Priscilla. They were traveling with him. And then he goes to the synagogue and he was reasoning with the Jews in Ephesus and they asked Paul to stay and he says, no. I'm thinking, what? Wait a minute, Paul. You go to the synagogue and you preach the gospel and they want to hear and you don't want to? Because usually Paul goes to a synagogue and he preaches and they tell him to get out. Or they beat him up or they throw him in jail or they tell him get out of town, go to the next town. In fact, if you go to the next town, get out of that town too. We don't want you anywhere around here. That's usually what happens when Paul goes to a synagogue. Paul like never has a welcomed audience in the synagogue. Okay? But here, well, the, the only time he has a welcomed audience is really the non-Jews. Because Paul goes to a synagogue, preaches this message that God can, can forgive you by grace and not works. And it's available to, 
to non-Jewish believers, and those are the only guys that say, hey, we want to hear more, right? But here Paul goes to the synagogue in Ephesus, and they say, hey, we want to hear more, Paul. And Paul says, you know, i, I got to leave. What? I, I, we want to hear more of this gospel of grace. Tell us more, Paul. And he says, I can't. i gotta, I got to go. We don't know why, okay? Maybe he, had a, he was in a rush, but keep reading verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So what's happening here, he's going to be back in three and a half years, and that's going to be on his third journey, and he's going to leave, and he says, I will return to you if God wills. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three, God is always in control. Okay? I, I, this is why, why Paul says this. Paul says, I will return to you if God wills. And you know what? And that's what we say as believers. As New Testament believers, this is what we say. In fact, that's what Jesus' half-brother, James, taught us to say. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse 13, this is what James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see, as believers, it's good to plan. We need to plan. I don't think I could function if I didn't have a plan. But there's always this little contingency with our plans. There's always this little rider with anything in our plans. Our plans are subject to change. Because God has editing rights over our plans. So we need to go ahead and we need to make our plans, but then know that God can change our plans. That's why Paul says here, he says, I'll be there, Lord willing. That's what Paul is saying. Keep reading verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up. Okay, stop right there. This is Caesarea by the sea. This is a coastal town on Israel. And it says, and he went up. When you read that, and it says he went up, it means he went to Jerusalem, okay? If you wanted to immigrate to Jerusalem today, to Israel today, you would use this term, and you would say, I'm going up, and the word in Hebrew is ayah, and ayah means to go up, and so if you're a Jew and you use this word, you're saying, I'm going up, to a Jewish believer that hears that word, it means you're going to Jerusalem. It means you're literally going to Jerusalem, and it means this for a couple reasons, okay? Well, first of all, Jerusalem is about 2,600 feet above sea level. Doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but for a lot of the known world, it is, it is kind of a higher elevation. But wherever Jerusalem is, it doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, you have to go up because Jerusalem is built on a hill, okay? Hence, in the Old Testament, there is the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were to be sung by the family as they're making their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And you would sing these songs. And since you were ascending up to Jerusalem, you were ascending upwards. Well, to more, more than that, just moving physically up, okay? If you're going to Jerusalem, you were said to be moving up in life, spiritually speaking, generally speaking, emotionally speaking. You're, you're moving up, you're improving your life because you're going to Jerusalem. That's why to this day... 
all the Jews want to move to Jerusalem because you're, you're moving up spiritually. That, that's, that's God's city. And so when we read these words, and then Luke tells us he went up, it means he went to Jerusalem. Okay? So this is what happened. Paul leaves Ephesus. He goes to Caesarea. He went up, and he went to the feast that is going on in Jerusalem. Keep reading verse 22. It says, And he went up, and he greeted the church, and he went down to Antioch. Okay, Paul went. He made it. Remember we said he's going to Jerusalem? Well, he made it. But he didn't stay very long. Okay, it must not have been that important to Paul. It was pretty important, but must not have been that important because he didn't stay there that long. But I think the reason why he didn't stay there, and this is just my guess, remember Paul was a Pharisee. He, he studied under Gamil in Jerusalem, but he was involved with some pretty difficult situations in Jerusalem. Namely, he had a hand in the death of some people there. There was a deacon named Stephen, there's bad blood because he held the coats as they, they murdered Stephen. And I think there's some people that have a very, very good memory. So Paul doesn't really love it there in Jerusalem because he's not all that loved. And I think he's got a better fellowship, a better situation with the boys up in Antioch. And so what happens is he leaves, um, he, he leaves Ephesus, sails across the Mediterranean Sea, makes it to Caesarea, climbs up to Jerusalem, there for a feast, and then leaves and goes to Antioch. Um, and that's the end of our, the second missionary journey. Verse 22 concludes the second missionary journey to the Apostle Paul. And we're about to read the start of the third missionary journey. Verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia in vigorous, strengthening all the disciples. So verse 23 is the start of the third missionary journey. I'd like that there would be a chapter break there, but when the people put in the, the chapter breaks, that's not the spot they chose. That's where I would choose, but who am I? But anyways, that's the, the beginning of the third missionary journey. Verse 24 that we're about to read, it's like Paul's going to all these regions. Uh, and, but remember, Luke is writing. And so in verse 24, I'm just setting this up. It's almost like... Like Luke's telling us, hold on a second, but back in Ephesus, in the, almost like the camera pans, look in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being in fervent spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here's my fourth point this morning, point number four. If you're willing, God will use you greatly. And here's why I would say that. Because here's Apollos. We, we've met this guy. He's an interesting cat. His, his full name is Apollonius. And Apollonius means a follower of Apollo. And Apollo is a Greek god. If you know your Greek mythology, Apollos is the sun god. He is the son of Zeus. And so here's a guy, uh, Apollonius. He's a Jew with a very pagan name. It's a, it's a Greek name. Apollonius is his full name, but again, Apollos is his nickname. He's a Hellenistic Jew. So he's a Greek with Jewish, or excuse me, a Jew with Greek influence. They all have those mixed up. And we're told he's from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. 
Well, Alexandria, Egypt is the second largest city in the Roman Empire during this time, and it's a massive city. And theologians say about a third of the population, about roughly 250,000 people, were Jewish. And if you don't know this, Alexandria was founded by, dramatic pause, Alexander the Great. And in about 332 BC, Alexander the Great founded this, this city, and it's a very progressive Greek city. And so Alexandria was a lar- has a large Jewish population there. It's actually so large that they would welcome in Greek, uh, excuse me, Jewish refugees. If you didn't know this, maybe you will know, but it's most likely that Jesus lived there. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus lived Yeah, go back into our Gospels, the beginning of Matthew and Luke, and we are told that, that Joseph and Mary had to flee out of their hometown. They had to flee this mad king that was murdering all the the, the little baby boys, and they fled to Egypt. Well, most likely they went to Alexandria. We don't know for sure, but that would be a likely fit. Well, here we meet uh, Apollos. He's from Alexandria, and he shows up in, in Ephesus. And again, he's an interesting mix of a guy because he, he's a Jew with a very pagan name, but he's a Messianic Jew, sort of. Okay, this is hard to kind of explain. I mean, I'd say partways Messianic Jew. And I'm saying that because he believes in Messiah, and he believes Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't know about the crucifixion. He doesn't know about the resurrection. He only knows about John's baptism. He knows John was preaching repentance, and he knows about John's baptism, but he doesn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know about anything that happened after John. Now, he believes that that John came and he said, hey, there's this guy that's coming, and he's coming after me. He says, I'm not even worthy of untying his sandal, but he's the Messiah. And many people are going to get converted, including Jews and Gentiles. They're going to get saved, and that's what Apollos believes. So here he is. He's kind of a weird guy, but he's got this brilliant mind, and he's from the city of Alexandria. And he shows up in Ephesus, and he preaches Jesus. But he doesn't know anything about the cross. He doesn't know anything about the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm having a guess that he must have been pretty persuasive. Okay? And so um, Aquila and Priscilla, they teach him the way of God more accurately. I think they probably saw him preaching and thinking, man, this guy's good. He can really speak. If only his theology was better. And so what do they do? They pull him aside and they, they teach him the, the way of God more accurately. And so then what happens, he understands both sides of the cross. Verse 27 and 28. And when he wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encountered him and rode to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So in a very short period of time, Apollos grew strong, and he preaches the gospel. He, he, his theology improved, and he goes to Corinth. That, that's the same place where Paul was for 18th month, and he refuted in the synagogues more accurately everything he learned. Now, I want to stop there, and I really want to leave us with four questions. If you're apt to take your notes, I think these are four questions that are worth writing down, and, and here's the question. Question number one, Paul was a man that suffered tremendously for the gospel, how have you suffered? If Paul suffered, how have you suffered? How about this? Are you even willing to suffer? 
Or, or, you know, so much of Christianity preaches, oh, just life is wonderful. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you just tiptoe through the tulips all day long and nothing bad will ever happen. But the truth is, if you're going to preach Christ, if you're going to allow God to work through you, well, then time's going to get tough. So how have you suffered? Here's question number two. Do you really know that God is with you no matter what? You know, it's easy to say that when times are great. It's easy to stand in a place like this and say, you know what, God is with you no matter what when times are great. It's easy to believe that. But when it's hard, is when difficult times come. When death comes knocking at your door, when, when disease, when someone you know and love is taken from you, that's when you need to know it. But that's also when it's hard to know that. So do you really know that God is with you no matter what? Question number three. How can you be a believer like Apollos? Think about it. Apollos was a new believer. He, he maybe just got saved, I think. And he's on fire for God. But you know what? Also, he's a guy that's open for correction. He's open to have somebody pour into him, to teach him the way of God more accurately, and then use what he knows to, to grow the kingdom of God. So how can you be a believer that's like Apollos? Here's the fourth question. I think this is the most important question out of the four. But based off this text, we can clearly see that the Lord wants to save lost people. So the question is this. What are you doing to allow God to save lost people through you? You know, like the, 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 the vision that, that God gave to, to Paul, he says, I, I, I want to save more people. Keep preaching. Are you allowing God to work through you to save the lost people here in our own hometown? That there's little boys and girls, men and women right here on the streets of Warland that don't know Jesus. Are you allowing God to work through you so they can come to know Jesus? Because we should. Every single one of us should. The gospel should be on our lips at a moment's notice. You know, when we meet somebody for, for the first time, the first thing we should think of is, does this person know Christ? Are they going to go spend eternity in heaven with Jesus? Or right now, are they destined for hell? You know what? The Bible says that God wants to save them all. And the truth is, He wants to save them all through believers. Are you allowing God to use you to save lost people? Because He wants us to know the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus, we want you to know Jesus right now. To come to an understanding that, that, that we all are sinners. It's not that just you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And because of our sin, we are separated from God. There's nothing we can do about it. But that's why Christ came. He broke into humanity to save us from our sins. To pay the price for what we have done. He's perfect. He's never sinned. Why did he have to die? The answer is because of you and me. Because of our sin, Jesus went to the cross. And the very wrath of God was poured on him. And he died. He gave his body. He gave his blood for what we have done. Then he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's not Jesus plus this, that, and the other thing. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. If we place faith in him, we will be saved. And for most of us, it's a prayer. Most of us, it's, it's a time where we have this recognition of, a, of our sinfulness. And we cry out to him. And we say, save me, God. If you never called out to God, I would ask you to do that now. To say, dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And because of my sin, I am separated from you. But you love me despite of my wickedness. And you came and you paid the price for my sin. Save me, Lord Jesus. 
I say this in your holy, precious name. Amen.